0: Listen to At the Letters ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, and welcome to At the Letters for October the 27th, 2022. Ben Nicholson-Smith here with you, joined by Shai Davidi once again. And we should note from the very beginning, of course, that At The Letters is brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Thanks as well to our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Shai, you're back. Talking more baseball. Welcome. Thanks again for making the time. A
1: pleasure as always, Ben.
0: It's kind of an interesting time of year. I don't know if you get this question, but do you ever get people asking you like, maybe who don't know you and you tell them what you do. And it's like, what do you do in the baseball off season?
1: Yeah. Oh, even from people who know me, <laughs> everybody, yeah. even my, even my kids, like, what are you doing now, dad? Uh, yeah. it's, it's kind of funny, but it, it is still busy, right? There's still things that are happening. Obviously the world series is about to start and there's a lot of excitement in around that. So there's always something going on. Like one thing I do wish Major League Baseball would take from the National Hockey League is National Hockey League, they get their off-season business done in like a week. Then they're all up north at the cottage getting drunk for two months. You know, I think Major League Baseball could kind of take a, a page out of that book and just like, let's just shut it down for a period of time and give people a proper break. It's amazing. I'm sure you've heard this too, but the amount of people who sort of enjoyed the downtime period through December, January during the lockout. <laughs> And I didn't say, just hear from them. I was one of them. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, we should do this every year. Yeah. Major League Baseball should do this every year. So uh, I'm not ready to shut it down just yet because I'm excited about the off season yes. that's about to begin. But uh, I wouldn't mind that, you know, maybe four weeks of quiet and just uh, everybody in the game take a break. I think the industry needs It, it might be uh, a real smart thing for the people who are in it just to, refresh and be able to have a, a more positive mindset and outlook going into the new year.
0: Yeah, I think definitely for GMs or AGMs, I mean, baseball ops people, they would like to have a break and there's really not one in the course of their calendar. You know, it's, it's funny, obviously I, I do get asked that question pretty often and it's always with good intentions, I, I think, but um, you know, there's <laughs> so much to really cover in the course of the baseball off season. Of course there's playoffs. Now we just had the press conference on Friday Uh, announcing john schneider back as the manager which we'll get to in the course of today's podcast and then you have gm meetings which you and i will be covering winter meetings which we'll have full coverage of you know so there's a lot to look forward to here and i should say as well on on atl we are going to be weekly for at least the next few weeks um, into the middle part of november arden enjoying a little bit of just time to catch his breath after doing such great coverage uh, for the TV side. He'll be back and we'll do over-unders. We'll do all that stuff. So lots to look ahead to here on the pod. But Shai, let's start with John Schneider. I mean, we um, talked last week about the likelihood that he would be back. And I think both you and I at that point were saying, yeah, we, you know, this is probably what's going to happen. But now we have a bit more insight, A, because It has happened, and we heard from both him and Ross Atkins. And then B, you know, we've been able to gather a bit more about what happened behind the scenes. So can I get you to kind of walk us back through that process for the Blue Jays and what led to the hiring of John Schneider?
1: Yeah, well, I think let's start here, Ben. is You and I both on the podcast and off air talked a fair bit about, like, why is this not happening? Because it just seemed so automatic. And you know, we joked a little bit about how the Blue Jays love their process. Look, the Blue Jays do love their process and they had to go through one there. Uh, But getting a little insight into just what went into that two weeks when they were discussing things with one another, I thought was pretty interesting. And essentially what had happened was John Schneider gets thrown in the role. It's go time from the second he takes over, right? And this isn't something that the blue jays have thought about for an extended period of time you know the sense that i think both of us got is that when it was time to replace charlie montoya ross adkins made the decision and then i've got to get this done pretty quickly so there wasn't a period of time where the blue jays kind of ran through a list of candidates or it really had deep discussions with john schneider about Anything from you know what is your ideal approach to a player who's unhappy to how do you envision the role of say bench coach you know forget the name just what does that position look like in your yeah. mind it was just go 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 throughout the season and so when they got to when they got eliminated from Se- by Seattle that gave them a the chance to step back and for Ross Atkinson John Schneider to have those conversations and it was more about longer-term philosophies. It wasn't just what's going to make it work in this given day of the 2022 season. It was more with an eye on longer-term, is there alignment? Do they feel the same way about certain things? Are there some issues or some questions that they had to resolve amongst one another? And to some extent, this was also John Schneider's chance to interview Ross Atkins as much as it was Ross Atkins' chance to interview John Schneider. John Schneider hadn't been through a managerial interview uh, before for a major league job, and so all this stuff was new and this was something that the two sides could break down together and obviously they got to a place where they had wide scale agreement and uh, an alignment of vision and things of that nature which allowed them to lock down that 3 year deal with the with the with the club option on 2026 so you know in hindsight like you think about it like okay that makes sense i understand why they did that but I think the period of time that it took, given how well things went for the Blue Jays once Schneider took over, that just, you know, again, it, it led to some doubts, which, you know, we got a little bit of clarity on.
0: Yeah. And the sense is, as you as you mentioned, you know, maybe there's a, a little bit of at least kind of hypothetical consideration of other candidates. I, you know, certainly do not get the sense that they were whining and dining or interviewing anybody else. I mean, I really do think that, you know, based on the conversations that, that I've had, you know it certainly seems as though this is John Schneider okay this is we're going to we're going to start here and if we have to branch out we can branch out and they did not end up having to to do that at all because the conversations it seems went really well and i think you know sometimes it's it's worth kind of reminding ourselves and and the listeners as well that you know the the job of a manager really does cover so many different facets and so you're overseeing game planning you're overseeing you know a lot of different coaches like that's a big part of the job too it's not mm-hmm. just a hitting coach and a pitching coach and a first base and a third base like there are a lot of coaches on a major league staff in today's game and so part of what the manager does is oversees how those coaches become integrated with the players what their tasks are um, what their expectations are what the limitations are potentially on who does what in what situation so to have the chance to talk that through it seems was important for both john schneider and ross atkins
1: yeah for sure and i think the way you put it is really bang on that uh, the blue jays if there would have been some sort of red flag or some sort of real pointed division then maybe at that point they would have branched out and started talking to others but the understanding i think both of us have is that that did not occur and that they really locked in on john schneider everything went well and there was really no need for them to Invite others for, for conversations to see what that, that might look like. And then in terms of the way you describe the manager role, you know, we've talked about it a fair bit throughout the year at the time when, when Charlie Montoya was was fired and even before that, that the role of manager is just so different with what people have in their mind locked in as sort of this is what the manager is supposed to do, right? We still think, I think in some circles at least, that the manager is this uh, sort of grand diviner who has is able to pull out moves on whims and is able to read things in the games and and that's what he does. And really, the the manager's role right now is essentially to be a buffer or a central node through which you know feedback is coming in and out from players, from the front office, from analytics, from scouts, uh, from coaches. And redistributing between all those different parties and the manager sort of at the center of that role. And so I think in that realm, the job that John Schneider did and what he demonstrated uh, over the course of those two and a half months when he was in charge was that he really grasp that and he was able to balance some of the EQ needs in the clubhouse. And he was able to translate some of the stuff that was coming out of uh, analytics and research and development. And he was able to communicate needs and make cases to the front office about, okay, this is what we need to be doing with our roster. And he was able to empower the coaches to do their jobs a- a- as effectively as possible. So you know, for all those reasons that all work with John Schneider, And then on top of that, I think the final piece that had to come into place was that the way that he'd want to run it with an opportunity to take a step back and not just have to jump into a, you know, a moving car and steer the wheel, essentially, is aligned with how the Blue Jay seed as well.
0: Yeah, it's a good comparison for sure. And he did a pretty good job with a (laughs) with a car that uh, some might say was not being driven very well. Um, That's probably a topic for another day. But I do think like, you know, in talking about the manager's role that is it's a really interesting topic to me and i actually think it's still quite misunderstood and so i, I think that means it's worth uh, at least sharing what i how i would view the position and hearing your thoughts on this as well shy but you know I, I think a lot of the time there's this false dichotomy that exists around analytics and you know feel like as if you know dusty baker's like a feel manager and then you know whoever pick your like young manager who's coming up and maybe doesn't like Kevin cash would obviously be viewed as like this, this manager who's like your analytics manager and he's pulling Blake Snell and, you know, operating off a spreadsheet. And I think a lot of the time those things are, are certainly compatible together. And you can have a manager like John Schneider, who's been talking about exit velos. Like if you go back and listen to his, conversation on ATL with me and Arden from like four or five years ago he's talking about Vladimir's exit velos so this is a guy who's clearly got his finger on the pulse of analytics and yet he can also do the sort of EQ side of it where he's having conversations that are in tune with his players and and proactive and communicating well and it's like I, I almost think of like You know, I've never worked at a bank, obviously, but let's say like a big bank, you know, you're obviously going to run the numbers, but the best managers at a given bank are going to be good with people as well. You know, like it's not like, it's not like baseball can only choose to have one of these two things.
1: Absolutely. And look, this is, you know, I started covering baseball just at the dawn of the Moneyball era. And it was a really interesting time to cover it. And it's kind of funny how, we're still having a lot of the same conversations that were had then. Now, there are some things that have become generally accepted over time and some understanding, but there are still a lot of people who are just either afraid of information or just hear the word analytics and immediately get their backup. And analytics, if it's being done properly, it's essentially just more and better information, right? Instead of like that guy hits the ball really hard. Well, well, He hits at 110 miles an hour. Or this guy has a great swing. Well, we can identify what his swing plane is and what zones he makes good, the best contact in. And why would we not want that information? Why would we not want to apply that information? That's where some of this comes by. Now, where the feel comes in, and you mentioned Kevin Cash and Blake Snell, so not to relitigate this because that horse has been beaten enough. But the fact is like that third time through the lineup thing is such a a sore point still where people will kind of roll their eyes at it. And there are a lot of elements that go into it. And it's how is a pitcher going on a given day? It's not just strictly based on the numbers, but the fact is, and this is throughout history, this is not a recent trend, that the more times a batter gets to see a pitcher in a game the more likely he is to have success against that pitcher, no matter who that pitcher is. Using that information, making judgments, that's where some feel comes in. Because, okay, the numbers say this, but this guy's stuff is doing the X on this given day. Mm -hmm. And this guy is throwing like this. And maybe my bullpen is grinding a little bit. So I've got to push him. And maybe on a different day, it's like, you know, Pitcher had a long inning the inning before. Now he's going to go a third time through. Uh, maybe there's a guy on second who's looking in at the catcher and thinking about uh, maybe passing on some signs or maybe able to pick up some stuff. And my bullpen is fresh. Well, you know, those are different factors. And so having a manager who's not just going to be, you know, the plan says X, uh, I'm going to do X, one who has a feel with, you know, what his pitchers are going through. It's like, oh, this reliever, uh, I know he's feeling really, really strong today. He's coming back. He's recovered really well from his last outing. I can trust him in this spot versus, you know, this guy's hanging a little bit and he's not quite right. He's not confident. He's not in a good mindset. Maybe this is a day to not use him. That to me is where a manager can make his money, being able to exist in that little bit of gray there. And, you know, I think the way that you described it, I think that's, that's exactly what it is and that people need to kind of wrap their mind around this. And then the ideal manager of today is a guy who can take that data, translate it into a relatable way to his players, convince them that this is good for them and get buy-in from them. But then also understand that on a certain day, a player may not want to do that because of what he's feeling, or may not be there because of something that's happening off the field, and then provide leeway for all that. So, yeah. it's certainly a tall order. There are a lot of pressures and demands on, on that role uh, in today's game, uh, and it's a hundred percent different from the role that we grew up with.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's a really complex role. Um, you know, I, I think that it's it's an incredibly demanding role i mean even you think about like having to meet with the media two times a day for seven and a half months a year even if you don't make the playoffs like that's a lot i guess it's one in spring training but well no two because after the game two they just yeah. like there's so many demands as the public spokesperson of the team and really in a lot of ways and then dealing with the players egos i mean it's a lot to juggle and i will say i mean this is that our first podcast since it, the news has become official like for my personal kind of opinion on this I, I think honestly it's a good call by the jays i think this is a move that makes sense because you're not going in blind and, and look if they had hired john schneider in 2019 that's probably a reach you know that's someone who hasn't been mm-hmm. at that point on a major league bench and you know maybe he got a little consideration but ultimately wasn't seriously considered for the role at the time and you know they landed on Charlie Montoyo, and for a while that worked well until it until it didn't. So you know in this case we don't know where it's going to lead with John Schneider, and ultimately you know the the challenge is in operating the day to day team. And so there's no single big challenge; it's all all those little ones that come up hour to hour and day to day throughout the season that he'll have to respond to. So it's easy to sit here in October of you know 2022 and say I think it's a good move, but. Honestly, I think what we saw down the stretch from Schneider showed that he's capable of doing this role.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, the way that I kind of think of the manager is you're the person, you're either the answer or the cause of everyone's problem, (laughs) right? So everyone's coming to you uh, where whatever level of the org, it's like player is not happy with his playing time, uh, player who's not feeling well, uh, media, front office didn't like this move, didn't like that move. Uh, You're debating why this happened. All of that just falls on the manager's shoulders, right? <laughs> and It is just, you're kind of like a fireman. You're just running around with a hose trying to like extinguish different fires or uh, all around your your clubhouse and, and your team. But what I was really impressed with, and, and Ben, I'd be curious kind of what your observation of this was, but just from the moment Go hit and he took over from Charlie Montoya, he was ready. And I'm sure there were moments where he was this is my first time, I don't know what to do or like questioning himself or second guessing himself. I think that would be, it would only be human nature to do that. But he did not seem like someone who was unprepared. And that really resonated to me. I was just, I found it remarkable that again, to use the same analogy that you could jump behind a speeding car, grab the wheel and then get it back on the road. That's a gargantuan task. And you know, I think he handled that really well. And I also really like that this is someone really of the organization, right? Drafted by the club, entire minor league career with the team, didn't get to the major leagues, but his entire playing career was a team Transitioned, Entire coaching career is with the organization up all the different levels, uh, except AAA. He, uh, he's really in the fabric of the organization and to me i think it's really important that guys like that get rewarded in in a lot of ways it's to me it's the ideal everyone likes to sort of parachute in a star but if you can bring someone who's survived multiple regimes multiple front offices survived different philosophical shifts and adapted and taken the best of every grouping that he's been able to to work under to me that's a real asset so you know, I think for all the reasons you mentioned, I think for those reasons as well, you know, John Schneider does seem like the right fit, and you know, we'll, ultimately, proof's going to be in the pudding. We'll see how yeah. it goes and what it looks like over 162 compared to two and a half months. Yeah. But you know, we've both spoken to enough people who think that a lot of the the looseness in their play and some of the undisciplined stuff that continue to show up. That if, you know, if he can start his managerial style from spring training outwards mm-hmm. and create all these established expectations, a lot of that will go away. And this will look like a really different team over 162 games.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and like you say, there are way bigger tests to come for John Schneider and the Blue Jays. That's a good thing. I mean, you want to be tested to, to win. You have to pass a lot of tests. Um, and, and I think like with Schneider... He really seems to embrace the challenge of the role and he's armed with a lot of information. There's no question about that. If you ask him about a decision, this goes back to his time as a coach. But, you know, asking uh, why did the Jays do a certain thing, even like a pinch running decision. I think I might be getting this wrong, but I want to say last month there was a game in Philly where the Jays were down two and he pinch ran for Alejandro Kirk at first base with the Jays down two. And I asked him why and not to. You know, I just was curious, like, why? Why? Because it wasn't the tying run. You said, we just want to create chaos. We wanted a faster runner out there. Um, and so knowing that anytime I have a question like that, there will be an answer coming back is something. And it's an answer that usually, you know, maybe you disagree, maybe you, maybe you agree, but there's an answer that has some sort of meaning behind it or some sort of thought behind it. So I think that that's important. For the players as well, because, you know, what I think is is ultimately secondary. But if he's asking, if Kirk is asking him that question, he'd better have an answer. And so that's an important part of it that clearly he will have. Right.
1: Like, even though it may feel like it, like this team is never going to fly by the seat of its pants. Right. Unless utter chaos occurs, like three players get injured and you have to take three players out of uh, out of a game or something like that. Like barring a, a ridiculous scenario. You know, there is going to be a level of preparation. And, you know, one thing that I, I don't want to like overweigh this, but I do think it's significant is that John Schneider really wanted this job, right? He made no bones about it. Like this was part of his long-term goal. He was working towards this. And at every level, like he put in the work at, that he would, of the job demanded of him but he was trying to build himself up and be in a position that one day he could manage a major league club. He wanted to be one of 30 and he got there and he looked really comfortable in that role. You know, there were times where I don't think Charlie necessarily had that same comfort. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some circumstances that relate to that. And so, you know, uh, without sort of diving too deep into that, I, I don't necessarily think that's on him alone, but I do you did see a level of comfort with John Schneider uh, a level of comfort seemingly with you know w- the information that he was getting from the from analytics and from the front office uh, there was seemingly a comfort in his dealing with players in his dealing with all different matters mm-hmm. and that's that's relevant that's all that's a piece of this like how much of it that I don't know but you know he's got the preparation he's got the thought He's not flying by the seat of his pants when he does make a move like a pinch running there or, you know, if he chooses to hit and run in a given situation, it's not just let's try it and see what happens. It's we believe this is an opportunity we can exploit. We may be wrong, but there is a reason why we thought we could capitalize on this moment.
0: For sure. And, you know, one thing about John Schneider that was never in doubt for for me from my vantage point was what was motivating him. And, you know, of course, there's a personal motivation to achieve and and do things well. But you clearly wanted to win baseball games, you know, when you're watching him in the dugout or him interacting with players, umpires, uh, other coaches. There was uh, definitely a fire to win baseball games and you need and want to have that. I think the players responded to that. As well. So we'll see where it leads in the course of the next three to four years uh, for John Schneider, maybe less, maybe more manager contracts really are, are meant to be ripped up anyways. Um, but first, uh, we will take a break here on at the letters. We do have lots more to get to, including an update on Lord Gurriel Jr. So stick with us and we will be back with more Blue Jays conversation. Welcome back to At The Letters. It is time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, presented by Miller Lite, the original light Beer. Shy, the World Series is about to start. I'm going to throw a simple question at you. The Houston Astros, so far undefeated in the postseason. They're a great team. Will they run the table on the way to a 2022 World Series championship? Well, at the risk
1: of having the Phillies make me look very, very stupid in a week's time, I feel like the Houston Astros have a really good chance of running the table here and going wire to wire. They are just such a well-oiled machine right now that whatever type of game it turns out to be, they've got the tools that they need to win that. And everyone's performing. There are no soft spots on that pitching staff. There are no soft spots in that lineup. Chaz McCormack is hitting big home runs and and coming up with big moments for them. Like up and down, everyone is dangerous. And look, the Phillies have been great and they've been full value for getting to the World Series. And I know that they got some elite starting pitching and Nola and Wheeler, but you just look at the way Houston is playing right now and it just feels like nobody could beat them. They've had... An opportunity to get rested in between their their different rounds. They've, They've really been able to optimize in every way possible. The World Series may be a little bit of a different challenge, but it just feels like they've got a really good chance of making this happen.
0: Running the table. That is hard. I mean, I see the Phillies definitely winning games in this series. The Astros are the better team on paper. No argument there. But, you know, to me, the Phillies are going to have one of those games where, like, it clanks off Castellanos' glove for, like, a two-run error. But then Bryson Stott hits, like, a three-run triple. And then Harper, you know, walks it off. And, like, they have this weird combination of amazing power. Obviously, the vibes are, are pretty wild in Philadelphia right now. They have bad defense, obviously, at, at certain positions. Um, but, you know, they're still major league defenders. They can still make most plays, even if in the course of 162, that, that will cost them. So I, I see this being a bit more of an even series, especially because Nola and Wheeler will be starting 57% of the games if it goes seven, more if it goes shorter. So, I mean, that's you don't get to do that in the regular season. Those two guys start 40% of their games at most. So I actually think that starts to tilt things a little bit more even. Um, So I'm going to go Astros in seven for this one.
1: All right. And look, I think there's a part of me that's speaking uh, that I want (laughs) us to see a team run the tables. I think that would be really cool. I know everybody hates the Astros. And for the understandable reasons, this is by and large, a very different Astros group from the one before. There's certainly been a lot of change. Uh, But I I just think that you're seeing a team play at such an elite level. And, you know, the Yankees beat a tough Cleveland team. And then yeah, and they've got – I know that there's some holes in that lineup and we can debate different things. But, you know, the Yankees aren't a team that many clubs are sweeping, right? And I don't know that I would say there's total parallels between the Yankees and the Phillies. But I don't think the Phillies are that much better a club right now than the Yankees, even if they are starting Nola and Wheeler five times potentially in that series uh, or four times in that series. So it feels like Houston might be able to pull this off. They have a bit more depth through which to do that. And and I think that that might shine through because the, the Phillies haven't faced a team quite this deep playing quite as well. Atlanta's a deep club too. But they just weren't as locked in at this point the way the Astros are.
0: Let me me ask you this before we move back to the Blue Jays here. If the Astros did run the table, if they had an undefeated postseason, would that mean anything different to you? Because to me, when I look at it, it's kind of like, you know... Are you the MVP or not? You know, I don't put more stock in a unanimous MVP. Do you get in the Hall of Fame or not? You know, to me, it's like, uh, it's amazing uh, Mariano Rivera being the one unanimous player. But like, we all know Ken Griffey Jr. is still a Hall of Famer. I don't think that takes anything away. So how would you view that as far as the, the potential of running the table?
1: So I don't think that there's something like a World Series Plus or anything like that, right? It's not like you get extra check marks. And I do admire teams that have to overcome adversity and create, uh, you know, find ways around challenges to to get there in the end. And, and certainly the Phillies would qualify, right? You, we talked about John Schneider getting behind a driving car and pulling it back on the road. Well, I mean, Rob Thompson jumped in a vehicle that was on the edge of a cliff about to go fall off before he got the Phillies back on track. So, you know, full credit to them. And I think that would be a great achievement, but- there is something about going undefeated in a postseason that really just cements your dominance, right? Being able to win that many games in a row in that mag of that magnitude under those circumstances, I mean that's pretty incredible. So, yeah, you know, I don't know that people are ready to sort of forgive the Astros for what's happened or to sort of feel like this is a, a new group and and to move past it. Obviously, we still hear chants of cheaters and booze and all these different things wherever they go. But I think just from a baseball perspective, winning 11 straight postseason games in a single postseason, not across multiple postseasons, because I know the, the teams have won 12 across multiple postseasons. I mean that that would be a feat that would be really hard to match.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, you think back to sixteen and fifteen, the Jays were in the ALCS both years. Ever since then, the Astros have been in the ALCS every single year. It's just it's wild. Six in a row, four World Series appearances. They're a great team, um, but we are here to talk about the Toronto Blue Jays, and let's at least um, address some of the some of the other news that we learned last week here shy um and let's start with lourdes guriel jr he had an operation on his left wrist uh connected to the handmade bone in there to deal with an issue that he was evidently dealing with down the stretch take us through that and what you think it means for lourdes and the jays yeah
1: let's start off with hammock bone and blue jays fans of a certain age may remember that this was an injury that eric hinsky had a long time ago where he broke uh Broke the hammock bone and he needed a procedure to correct it. Uh, so, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. had something similar happen in his wrist. And what was interesting is I know that there was, uh, I think a lot of us speculated that maybe the wrist issue was connected to some of the decline in power that he experienced this year over last year. And when I asked Ross Atkins that, you know, he said he, the Blue Jays didn't think so and that. Lourdes himself didn't think so either. And and to me, that's interesting. And so, you know, I'd be curious to get a chance to talk to Lourdes and see whether, you know, there was something approach-wise that he changed, did he purposefully sacrifice some power, or maybe really was there? Maybe a bit of hesitancy to fully unleash. Was there a part of him that was protecting that wrist? That altered some of the the approach there. But in terms of his recovery, the trajectory is that he should be ready for spring training, obviously, or in advance of spring training. It was a, perhaps a four to six week shutdown period before he could start hitting again, something along those lines. So this isn't something that should derail his offseason very much. And for the Blue Jays, I think that's the biggest relief because, you know, assuming that the outfield returns as it is. Constructed and you know, Lourdes Guerrero Jr. is a big part of that and really is the type of hitter this team needs because he brings a different skill set than the rest of that lineup.
0: And he drills it to left field. It's a grand slam. Yeah, he does for sure. And it's interesting. Like you look at the max exit velo the last couple of years, it was actually the same or very comparable around 110 in 2021, around the same in 2022. His average exit velo was comparable. His barrel rate, though, which is a pretty significant measure, was way down. So not good. If you're the Jays, I almost wonder if it's better if it was impacting him at the plate this year, because then great, you have the procedure. You get that dealt with and then he's in better shape moving forward because, you know, he's running a 3.8% barrel rate. That's just not very good. You know, corner outfielder who's not a great defensive player, you want to see that higher. And he does do different things and he does put the ball in play. So there are ways for him to be a very good player, even if he's not absolutely crushing the ball all the time. But, you know, I just think it's there are more pathways to being a, a good player if you do find the barrel often.
1: Oh, for sure. And again, this is why I wonder if there is something physical that was limiting him from getting to barrels. Is this was this something approach wise where you know he he decided to sacrifice a little bit in terms of barrels and just to to make contact in certain ways and put the ball in play a little bit more? I, I just think that there are, could be a lot of different explanations there, and this is one of those things that you know you really need. The, almost the, the, to hear it from the player uh, or I'd rather hear it from the player rather than try to sort of take numbers and try to reverse engineer it that way.
0: Agreed. That makes sense uh, for sure. So all right. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Teoscar Hernandez in their final season before free agency. So this is actually kind of getting interesting for the Blue Jays at this point for 2023. They basically have the whole team back if they want with the exception of Ross Stripling, but. The clock is ticking on a lot of their guys starting after this coming season with Lourdes and Teoscar. So, you know, I guess, you know, broadly, we can expect that the Blue Jays will listen on both of these guys and will be open to the possibility of trading for them. But, you know, of course, we've talked about this for years. On paper, maybe you like to get a bit more left handed, ideally speaking. At the same time, though, these are two really good players and they have now pretty extended track records you certainly can't be cavalier about parting with either one of these guys
1: no and it's also this desire to make change for change's sake i think can be pretty dangerous right and like yeah on paper or from a philosophical standpoint obviously you'd want to be more left-handed or get some switch hitters in there And balance out the lineup and create some more flexibility and make bullpen decisions more difficult for the opposing manager. But just running to change those guys out and not worrying about getting players of equal value back is going to make this far more complicated because you don't want to put lesser players into their roles just because they happen to be left-handed. That doesn't make sense. And it's going to be hard for the Blue Jays to do better than those guys while getting reasonable value back for both those players, right? Because essentially they're both rentals right now. So how much is the market going to pay for a player for one year of control for a player of that ilk? You're probably not getting a player of similar quality back unless you're getting another rental just like them. And at that point, You know, that could potentially be good and uh, could be helpful, but not necessarily. And these are two players that you know, two players that are established within your organization. All that stuff really matters. So I I don't think it's it's going to be simple or easy for them to, to make that change. And as much as the, you know, when you're watching a team every day, you see some of the fault lines, you see some of the issues that happen. Worth remembering is that this is one of the best offensive clubs in baseball. Yeah. Very few teams can hit like the Blue Jays. Very few teams produce like the Blue Jays. And we always want perfection. 162 really, uh, watching 162 games really exposes warts. And sometimes you end up staring at the warts and you got to take a step back and make sure you're looking at the full
0: picture. Well, exactly. I mean, it really is worth remembering um, you know, like the Yankees, the bottom of their lineup for the really for a good chunk of the year really fell off like it was not a great offensive team, obviously not a great defensive team either. The Yankees just not a great, great team. They've got a lot of flaws. And, you know, the judge question is massive for them. But even the Astros like they're starting Martin Maldonado or Vasquez, Chas McCormick, who's at least an average offensive player, Ledmus Diaz. He's, he's serviceable. He's useful. But it's not like they have nine bashers. They've got five or six. And then they have some players at the bottom of the order. And I mean, that's probably a model offense in Major League Baseball, along with the Dodgers. And the Jays, you know, if they're behind the Astros, they're not behind by much. So you have to tread judiciously. You you have to know that you're in a good spot, which, of course, they do with this group that they have. And, you know, with Lourdes, you know, maybe you consider trading him. But I don't see other teams necessarily stepping up after the season that he had, knowing that he had a wrist operation, you're taking on a fair amount of risk. And it would have to be a win now team, obviously, because, you know, the, the Colorado Rockies or the Arizona, well, Arizona might actually be kind of good. They have some pitching, but, you know, a, a total rebuild team, you know, they're not going to they're not going to trade for a rental player. Right,
1: exactly, and and there and a team that's trying to win isn't necessarily looking to shed a player off its big league roster, yeah. uh, which is what you probably want in return, unless you're going to make a prospect deal and then backfill through trade or free agency, which is, you know, certainly another avenue. But you know the the one thing ben, that has stuck with me a little bit since Ross Atkins said this in his end of season availability was that. As much as the Blue Jays, the debate has been about being too right-handed or whatever, the one element that they plan to study a little bit deeper was whether they had too many similar types of hitters that made game planning easier for their opposition and maybe allowed pitchers, opposing pitchers to stay in rhythm for extended periods. And we've heard this from different people who speculated that that might be what's going on. And really contributed to opponents being able to run through and dominate the lineups at times of these pitchers you think should have no business handling the Blue Jays, but you know it's a it's a high fastball slider guy, slider down and away guy who happens to be able to shut them down for a night unexpectedly. That to me is intriguing because, like, if you do feel you, if they do conclude that they do have too many of the same types of hitters, well. How do you adjust for that, and how do you tweak that? And so, is that something that you change in your own preparations or in your own game planning, or is that does that have to come down to a personnel change? That to me is, in some ways, one of the fundamental questions that the Blue Jays have to answer because whatever the conclusion is there probably has a pretty significant say on how you approach your personnel decisions.
0: For sure. Lots of intrigue there in the next few weeks. Shah, you and I will be at the GM meetings covering off any and all activity there. In the meantime, I'm looking at that Astros sweep. And if they do, I'll be sure to give you credit for calling it here first on At The Letters. Thanks, as always, for your time here today. Pleasure as always, Ben. Awesome. Well, that does it for us this week on ATL. Thanks to you for listening. Appreciate you sticking with us into the Depths of October, long after the Jays are eliminated. Really appreciate our listeners and also our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Of course, At The Letters brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. So thanks to Miller Lite as well. And we will talk to you next week on At The Letters.